Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Dorian Taylor has been designing and creating custom information infrastructure since 1999. He says that infrastructure is all that dull plumbing that makes the world actually function. It's dull because when it's working, it's invisible. Dorian Taylor's overall goal is to lower the friction between people and computers and to allow computers to do more for us with less intervention. He's a former board member of the Information Architecture Institute and is currently the principal of Private Alpha Technology. His skill set is impressive, to say the least. I've been a visual designer, I've been a system administrator, I've been a back-end developer, I've been a front-end developer, I've been, you know, databases, internationalization, security. You know, I've really been all over the map. That is, if you don't, you know, see where the it's connecting to subcutaneously, to me, it's just sort of all different facets of the same thing. The thing that was really serious to me, the time that, that, I, that I just had it, I, I quit my job as a developer in 2007, and I vacillated of like, okay, and this is a question that a lot of people I think have, is, do I go and get another job or do I freelance? And I was vacillating back and forth, and you know, I got you know, I got advice from people that why can't you do both? And and I I'm actually beginning to believe that they are mutually exclusive. They have mutually exclusive attitudes, and going for one is 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 the opposite of going for another. You just like you've got to pick one. And so uh, I ended up leaning towards consulting, and I needed to ex- understand why 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 is it what is it that repulses me so much about the the model that we do and i uh the model that we do is as as designers as developers is just in the acquisition of what i would call highly synthetic artifacts uh and by highly synthetic i mean that you have to do a lot of synthesis in order to get the final result you've got to make a thing 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 uh and so i you know i put software and websites in there but there's other things to you like writing a novel would be highly synthetic any sort of real creative endeavor, recording a, you know, an album, making a movie, not so much because there's a crapload of, of, of industrial activity, like building sets and whatnot um, in there. But there are a very uh, a set number of things for which uh, the physical medium is not actually all that important. What's on the medium, the information that's on the medium, like in the case of a novel, it can be an e-book, it can be in print. The medium doesn't matter, uh, the, the, the physical medium. Uh, and, and that's important because I believe that, uh, and I believe this because I've observed it, I've lived it, that the way that we treat uh, the acquisition of these highly synthetic artifacts is like a construction project. Uh, You've got a business person who has this chunk of capital, and they're like, how do I turn this chunk of capital into a bigger chunk of capital? That is the only question that they are asking, and that's the only question that they care about. And so somebody comes along and, and, and is willing to accept that principle, that whole premise that, oh, you know, we can turn your certain size chunk of capital to a, you know, size X plus N chunk of capital. That's what we call ROI. So, okay, now we're speaking the same language. And what ends up happening, uh, at least in my experience, is that the risk of getting that thing done on time and on budget is all of course on the on the on the um part of the person doing it their prize is a big hunk of money and it's usually cut up into two or three different pieces 
And so they have an, their incentives get all out of whack and their risk is extremely huge. And this is why we have death marches and why we have like, you know, feature bargaining and why we have all sorts of sort of like really nasty compromises that like if, in my opinion, the way that we thought about it, the way that we conceived the deal was we just changed our understanding of what it is that we're actually trying to deliver and what we're trying to conceptualize and what we're trying to do and the, and the service and the product that we're actually trying to make. If we took a look at that from that from the level of finance, from the level of, of, of um, you know the actual level of business, there might be you know something in there that would make it possible to make greater, better products, make better products that you know didn't compromise on those like in because my, you know I understand compromise. It's a calculus of, of, of what you can work with. And if you push one value up, another value shrinks, and then it, another one juts out in another dimension. And you know, I get it. I've lived it. I've been there. But what is really depressing is the compromise that you have to make that is like so bad that you know it actually obviates the entire purpose of why it was that you were doing whatever it was that you were trying to do. And instead, and 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 it turns into sort of. Uh, you're like, oh, we just have a perfunctory result that, you know, we, we need to show something. And that kind of interaction, I, I just like, I really want to make that obsolete. Like, I want to make that idea as something that you just don't do because it's nonsense. Right. The magic word to tell a lawyer is nonsense. So that's just an aside. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> what's the solution? Uh, the solution... As it pertains to the web, I think apps are a little bit harder and other things are also a little bit, you know, they're a little bit sketchier. I mean, you can look at like, say, going back to like Charles Dickens, who wrote serials and got feedback in the interstices between them. And, and his stories would meander all over the place because of his, uh, the feedback that he was getting from his readers. Like, I don't like what that character is doing. Like, make them do something else. Um, you know, I'm not a huge Dickens uh, 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 scholar, but, you know, I, I understand that much. The, the solution, as it pertains exclusively to the web, and that's the only thing that I've really been looking at, is that we look at it as a medium. Uh, we actually look at the, I, I hate to say the technical affordances, because they're more like the conceptual affordances of the medium. We are dealing in websites uh, where we probably should be dealing in discrete processes, business processes, user goals. We should probably be dealing in discrete pieces of content. And that does not correspond one-to-one -to, -one to the page. It could be an inset. It could be several pages. But the sort of idea of, like, we do wireframes for the homepage, and then we fill out the sections, and then we, you know, go and pester the client for content, and then it's... It's on us to make sure that this all happens on time. I find that pathetically inexcusable. I find that that is completely lacking in any spine. And this might be harsh, but you know, it really any sort of understanding of the of the medium that people are are, are working in. This is this it has entirely different affordances, like the fact that you can just replace stuff. You know, there are there are technical constraints, but I believe that those technical constraints have been conceived under the assumption of the business constraints. You were talking about 
the discrete user needs. I think, I think you know, so many companies come to us when we're doing freelance work and they say, replace this or just mm-hmm. make it look better. Um, so I think in, in the business world is kind of talking in that language. Mm-hmm. So how do you help them uncover those discrete user needs? Well, I think just to continue on to on the on the notion of like what the goal is, a lot of the time, you know, when people say, okay, we, we need to redesign the website, for example, we need to do, and they call it, you know, the site redesign. The, 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 the implementation is considered the end product and the goal. And just some of the things that I'm doing uh, with my clients is I am actually changing the objective to say that the implementation is not the goal. The goal is understanding the users so that when you have a widget on the implementation, you can actually trace back the provenance of why that thing was put there in the first place, all the way back to the persona and the initial, you know, the initial research. And the thesis there uh, is that a a design criterion or a set of sort of abstract ideas around why things should be the way they are can outlive any implementation. And if that is good enough, then that is actually better than the implementation, but you need an implementation. But like, what if we imagine that the implementation, like the programming platform language, whatever you use was disposable and that the design artifacts were so good. And of course there's a lot of feedback that this is not a one way process, but like the the design artifacts uh, mature to the point over time that they are so good that you can, if you felt like it just go and change that piece of discrete business process from one implementation to a completely different one and not upset anything in the process. If you could do that, you would have a, a lot more freedom, I think, from vendors, which is one of the things that we were, we were cared about. We, we cared about not getting locked into vendors uh, because we sort of believe that, that what if we based our relationships, our, 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 our business relationships, on mutual value rather than dependency. It was a very it was a very difficult thing to articulate with this one one client, like what the priorities were. And it was like, well, you know, we don't want to get screwed. That was the you know that was the uh, the the major motivation. You know, and I think a lot of entities have this problem. They have somebody, they go and they hire, and they ask the, the they ask a certain set of questions like how much is it going to take and how, how much is it going to cost and how long is it going to take and as long as there's somebody who's willing to answer that they're going to get the same kind of results which is this sort of the site launches and a lot of its features and most of them were cut which is another thing the the remaining surviving features <laughs> kind of go thud some of them might, some of them might not, whatever. But the, the features of the site, you know, because the, the, the information that, that created them was considered to be of less importance than the implementation. But what if we considered that, those as being more important? We can say, imagine you can have a persona that lasts 20 years, 30 years. Why wouldn't it? As long as that constituent exists in your business, 
there's no reason why you would just shred those when you have the your PHP doodads, when right. you've got your Drupal site. Oh, good, okay, you know, we can just, you know, put that in the shredder because we don't need these personas and wireframes and, and, and flow diagrams anymore, you know, because we have the implementation now. So thanks, designers, bye. Um, and I don't see how that is a smart idea. Yeah, the persona should be consistent over the years. And I think that it's our job to sort of educate corporations. And so when you're presenting some of those abstract ideas to change the objective, mm -hmm. you're also educating them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of why I've been starting to talk in, in, in CFO language. When I start talking about stuff like risk, because risk makes, the, makes the, the biofeedback ears pop up. The risk of the construction project, when you look at it from an ROI sort of centric construction project style perspective, is, you know, I try to look at, at risk as a sort of a three-dimensional object where one, you know, it's a, what do they call a tensor, which is the three-dimensional vector or whatever. You've got three dimensions in risk. You've got probability, the likelihood that the risk is going to happen. And risk can be positive as well. The, the risk of winning the lottery, for example. You've got the magnitude, which is the size of the, 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 of the lottery ticket, sorry, the size of the, the, the prize, and then you've got the horizon. And this was, this was a new one to me because I was first just using those two. But the third one was when the risk stops being a risk, when it goes away and it doesn't matter anymore. So, you know, like getting your, your product out by Christmas, for example, well, after Christmas, it doesn't matter, right? You know, or catching an airplane, the same sort of idea. It's like, if you miss the airplane, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, in that framework, you know, we can kind of imagine when we push and pull on, on one, we get, we, we get a different shape. So it's like, okay, well, what, just think about changing the shape of the risk involved in acquiring these artifacts. What does that look like? You know, you look at the affordances of the web, and what does it afford? And it affords, like, these little pieces. What if we said... Instead of a lottery ticket that looked like it had a very, very expensive cost, it had relative to the cost, it had a very low return. It wasn't measured in multipliers, it was measured in percent. You know, in the horizon, the, the, the duration of the period where the risk is still a risk is a very long period. You know, you, you're, you're locking up your capital, you know, a year, two years, whatever, and you can't do anything with it. It's a, and it's an all or nothing excursion. And what if we took that and stuck it in a blender? Is is really the idea? And and we changed it so that instead of one big monolithic risk, we change it into a bunch of little teeny tiny risks. So like the equivalent of pull tabs, except hopefully with better expected value. You know the the cost is low relative to the cost of the ticket. The value of the prize is extremely high, not measured in multipliers, but measured in exponents. And the, uh, the, the probability is arbitrary. We actually can't measure it. We're not even gonna try to measure it because the amount of effort required to figure out just how likely this was going to happen. Like, it's, it's what Nassim Taleb says, like, don't even bother to forecast. Don't even care, you know? And he also says, uh, you know, and this is like, I'm, I'm just ripping straight from him. You know, he says, say, for example, like take your portfolio, put 80% of it in the most boring bonds you can find, treasury bills, whatever. Take the other 20% and put it in the sketchiest stuff that you can find. And so what I'm saying is hack 80% of what you expect to pay off of this 
Let's look at that 20%. And then we hack that up as well into little teensy tiny pieces that have potentially exponential returns, arbitrarily high. We have no idea how high they're going to be, but we know that the downside is fixed. In the construction, uh, the construction model, the upside is fixed. ROI is a fixed upside. It's also a fixed downside, but it's a fixed upside too. If we figured out a way to actually bring that the last mile to the ground where, you know, because like right now it's sort of like a helium balloon up floating. So if we could actually tether this idea to the ground, you know, we might actually be able to specifically, again, websites because they uh, because they're so easy to bash up like that. Uh, we, we, we might be able to actually invent an entirely new methodology. So are you saying that if someone says, come redesign my website, you possibly present, again, looking at the objective, but still maybe scaling down the project and only looking at certain parts that might have a large impact? The only way that I know how to do this so far is to stop thinking about it. And this is, this is something that, 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 that I haven't, I've yet to talk to actual business people about, is stop thinking about it like it is a capital allocation. Think about it instead like a rate, right? It's a burn rate. It's kind of like an, it's an, you change it from a capital expense to an operating expense. And that rate is fixed. And so over the course of the year, you only spend a certain amount of, uh, of money. So your downside is bounded. So you, you can't lose arbitrarily large amounts of money, which is what the CFO wants to hear. So rather than it's sort of rather than thinking about it as a, as a as a redesign as well, you know, it's like the way that I'm actually doing this, the way that I've implemented it, I've made some very specific technical interventions that is kind of like putting up a scaffold. You set up a server or bank of servers, depending on the size of the site, and what they do is they go in front of the existing server. I should probably provide you with a diagram. Um, it's actually in a piece in my in Contents magazine called yeah. No Longer No Sense of an Ending. We'll put a link on it. Okay. Um, the uh, these this device uh, and there's another one called Dissolving the Redesign. You put these servers uh, in front of your site or a server. Let's just make it simple. You've got a very small to medium website. It only needs one you know hosting account or whatever. It's not some crazy you know, clouded CDN monstrosity. It's just a little modest website. Yeah, you put this thing in front of it. And what it does is it, first of all, creates a space to put new stuff. And if you hit a, if you, if you put something at the URL on the new one, it serves out the new one. If there's nothing there on the new one, it passes through to the old one. It's as simple as that. It's like a, it's, it's a, it took me an afternoon to write this thing. It's called a reverse proxy. Okay, that's a very technical term. The idea is, is it just sits in between the, you know, the user and the and the and the origin, and and mediates. Uh, and if you and, and it's conditional, so that if you stick something in the way, that's what it sends out instead. That was the first intervention. The next intervention was trying to figure out uh, how do you look at the the the. How about the template? So we took a, a, a strategy of, of effectively sponging off or bleaching off the header, the sidebars, the footer, you know, and just leaving the little nugget of content in the middle. And that was what was 
you know, corresponding to the to, to the to the site. I'm super oversimplifying this stuff to you, and you're probably going to get a lot of the listeners going, "How the hell do you even know how to do that?" Uh, <laughs> what about this thing that you left out? Okay, well, I'm leaving out a bunch of stuff right now. Um, but the basic idea is, so we not only do we bleach the content coming through the old server, we stick it back on on a in a template system that actually runs below the application layer completely. That way, the, uh, we can manipulate things like the navigation, because that becomes its own resource. You can just hack on that. We can manipulate the, the, you know, the, the actual, we can actually change the look of the site, even though I would never recommend that to anybody. We could change the look of the site uh, without actually changing any of the backends, because we're not even touching them. We're just, we're scraping off all the stuff and we're sticking it all back on again. As we create these discrete user goals, as we create these, these discrete pieces of content, they start to occlude the original site. They start to get in the way of it. And once there is nothing left, once that every single piece has been patched over and covered up, then we go back to the template, we make a pretty new one, and then we launch in air quotes because the, the reality is, is a lot of the actual material functionality of the site could have been running, having people using it for months. But we just reskin it with something pretty. And now we've theoretically, you know, launched the site, even though <laughs> you've been using this thing for a while. So that what we're doing is we're actually demoting the launch from something or either demoting or promoting, however you want to look at it. We're demoting it from being this nail biting affair of like, oh, do we throw the switch or what to like, it's like a PR complete smoke and mirrors of, of all we're doing is we're just changing the look of it and the functionality is running. Wouldn't that be nice to live in that world where that is the norm? When all that stuff is covered, when all, when all the old stuff is covered up, you cut it loose and then you take off the scaffolding and now you have a new, completely new website. It's also handy for when you've got a hairball, like, like we do at the IA Institute, we've got a hairball of backends, platforms. We've got the WordPress here and the Drupal there and the movable type there. We've got some SaaS monstrosity, some platform hosted thing. You know, we've got all of these things. I counted 13. Like, how do you sever those relationships? How do you kill that vendor? How do you get rid of that stuff? Well, you got to make it not matter. And that was sort of the idea. That was the, that was the, the impetus for this, I guess, yeah. at, at the beginning. Well, that's good. I think it, it really helps take the fear out of, um, you know, looking at something so big and putting mm -hmm. it into small pieces, like you said. But replacing those little at a time so that when you do just add that visual layer, mm -hmm. then it looks like to everyone that it's a new site, mm -hmm. but yet everything else is running really smoothly. Yeah. All the other components are already solid. Correct. And we do use the word component, um, except it has a very specific meaning. Uh, uh, it, it has a meaning borrowed from graph theory and mathematics. Uh, a component in a, in, a, in a directed graph is sort of something that is closed. So you can imagine like every dot or every box in the, in the graph is, is, is a page or a resource of some kind. And 
the arrows are links in between those resources, but they're not necessarily just links. They could be embeds as well. They could be like a, an image or something like that, or, or an inset. You embed an inset. It, it's closed, though. It doesn't have arrows going out of it. And if you, and, and that's a diagram. If you, have a, if you have a diagram where you make this thing, it's got a terminal condition at the end. It goes to the final node, and then that's done. Um, that is a turn. That is exactly equivalent to a discrete business process. Okay, you can make that, and you can install it, deploy it, you know, and have your users use it. And that can be that the, the turnaround time on that is. We're not talking about months. We're talking about days. We're talking about possibly hours. Yeah. I mean, the idea of this would be like that you get so much useful information about like the kinds of things that you need to do. And not only that, it's also the decomposition of its anatomy and like how that all works that you don't prioritize as a first order activity anymore. You prioritize because there's this thing sticking out and it's obvious that that is the right next thing to do. And you know that it's going to have value to people. So it's not like a, an issue of like, how do we bargain features? I mean, and this is like, I'm totally ripping this from Alan Cooper. Like, you know, you, you try to make it obvious that we've got the information that we need. We, and, and if we change the job into making the next step obvious, uh, then we're not going to have this sort of disconnect of, of like, you know, no, really, we're the experts and, and you should do it this way. Or, you know, we're, we're, we have to figure out like if you've ever actually looked at the problem of task prioritization from a computational perspective, you know, it's NP complete, which means you have to use heuristics, which means that. Uh, you know, that, that you're not going to get the same result twice because if you tried to do an exhaustive result, it, it would take you so long to figure that out that there would be no value in it is basically, right. the, is basically the issue. And of course, if you added one more item, then you would explode the, the overhead exponentially and you'd have to do it all over again, except that much more work. Right. So let's not do that. Okay. Like, like we have this sort of really, but like, like, like what task prioritization the reason why we, we care about it when we do requirements analysis, uh, and, and when then once we've done that, we prioritize them. Uh, there was a really good book written in 1964. It was actually a PhD thesis of uh, architect named Christopher Alexander. Was, he was getting his PhD in math, I believe, at the time, and you know he said something really, really profound about about design, and that is, you know, two designers are not going to believe that. Uh, two arbitrary designers, I should say, are not going to believe that, you know, a given misfit, he calls it, like a given thing that needs to be dealt with, is has the same importance. But they will all agree on whether or not it is valid. But they're not going to agree on whether or not it's whether or not it's, it's, it's important and whether or not it's a priority. Um, so, you know, there are actually techniques for, uh, for saying, why don't we just you know, rather than trying to mitigate the amount of requirements, why don't we just blow them all up, make the, and this is kind of getting what I'm getting off into the weeds because, uh, you know, we're not, we, we had some conversations about this. Jorge Arango is right. really interested in this. Andrew Hinton is really interested in this. Uh, we blow up the requirements. We say, okay, throw in hundreds of requirements. And then what we're going to do is we're going to stitch them all together, the relationships with each other and how they either correlate with each other or they conflict with each other. And then what we're going to do is just forget all about whether or not they're important because we're never going to agree on what's more important than what. What we do is we decompose the structure 
we pull the structure apart mathematically so that we get these little islands of subproblems. So we get little bits of, 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 of requirements here and there. When we've got that, they become more manageable, and then we can subdivide them further. And then that little thing that you thought was either not worth doing, or maybe it was the, your pet thing that you thought that was really, really important. When you do that, uh, it, it, you, you actually subdivide the problem to the point where these little, uh, you know, these little things of arbitrary importance become irrelevant. The importance right. of them becomes irrelevant because the problem is so damn small. Sure. And if the problem is small, then you and it's obvious what the solution is. You just solve it and right. you ship it. And even if it's just like something silly, like you know, the the fave icon on on the iInstitute.org. You know, I was like, wow, that's blurry. It's not. Doesn't look good. I, I, I know, I'll just open up Photoshop and I'll make a little pixel art one. It's clear, you know, and it looks better. Okay, great. You know, that took me 10 minutes. It was obvious to do. I didn't need clearance for it because I happened to, you know, be a director of that organization. You know, I didn't ask anybody's permission. I was totally unilateral. I just did it, you know, because it would bother me. It was obvious what to do and I just did it. Right. So what I want to do is I want to pulverize these problems into something that you can do obviously, you can take care of, right. uh, of as, a, as an obvious thing, you know, and then also set up the infrastructure so that, so that if, if somebody has, you know, and, and I know there's like, there's legal issues and there's you know, issues of, you know, who owns what turf right. and so on and so forth that I'm going to hand wave away because it doesn't need to be the process as, as, as totally cavalier as, as, uh, you know, making a new fave icon because I'm, you know, I'm authorized and I felt like it. it you know, it can be a little bit more rigorous than that. Uh, but it, it doesn't have to be paralyzed, I guess, by the complexity of, of, and and, and it also doesn't have to be artificially simplified because it's that process of artificial simplification that degrades the value of the product. What makes a good product is people actually solving problems, not looking like they've solved problems. Yeah. So, you know, let's, you know, explore the idea that the construction project is not the only way to acquire this stuff because there's tons. That's great. That's a great wrap up. Well, thank you for having me. Laura. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, we consistently strive to make meeting new people and having interesting conversations natural and effortless. From the design of our workspace to the events at our buildings, we do everything we can to support the idea that if one of us is successful, we all benefit. Thanks to Steve Crosby for digital development, an original score piece by Cameron Michel. 